Thank you, and welcome to, our, to members of our board and supporters of Wilson joining from the United States and around the world. This is the 14th installment of our private Wilson policy briefs. Uh, today, it is my pleasure to introduce my outstanding colleague, Dr. Benjamin Gadan, Deputy Director of the Wilson Center's Latin America Program and Director of the Argentina Project. Ben also serves as an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's a former South America director on the National Security Council staff at the White House. As a journalist, Ben reported for the Boston Globe, the Miami Herald, and other publications. He's a former Fulbrighter who was in, in Uruguay. He earned his PhD in foreign affairs from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, he's written public, uh, he's published opinion pieces in the Wall Street Journal, Miami Herald, The Hill, Foreign Policy, other publications, and has been quoted by The Times, Washington Post, CNN Money, Foreign Policy, and Bloomberg. Uh, we could not have a better expert uh, to address today's timely and important topic, which is that COVID-19 has overwhelmed governments worldwide, and many have turned to their armed forces for support. In many countries, the military has helped enforce social distancing measures and provided logistical help to prop up struggling healthcare systems. That is not controversial in regions with consolidated democracies. But in other parts of the world, particularly Latin America, the increasing prominence of the armed forces has raised concerns. After all, Latin America has a long history of military dictatorship. So the presence of armed troops on the street, even if they're feeding the homebound poor during a national lockdown, is making human rights activists antsy. Ben has been following this issue, including in Argentina, where the military, which held power until 1983 and murdered as many as 30,000 civilians, is suddenly reemerging as a major player in the daily lives of Argentines. Today, he will address the role of the military in the COVID-19 response in the region. Uh, please note that the first part of this conversation will be recorded and will be followed by an off-the-record Q&A segment. And I'll tell you how to, uh, when, when Ben concludes his remarks, how to ask a question. Okay, actually, let me tell you now, if you formulate a question, you can send it in right straight away. If you have a question, email uh, Nora Bodner. It's at nora.bodner at wilsoncenter.org. So please join me in virtually <laughs> through this uh, uh, telephonic uh, conference, welcoming Dr. Benjamin Gadan. Ben, over to you for your introductory remarks. Many thanks, Rob. Thank you, everyone, for participating and for your interest in this subject, not only relevant to Latin America, which will be the principal case study for my presentation, but, you know, lots of places um, right now that are facing similar logistical and administrative challenges that have come from this pandemic. Speaking of countries that have seen a changing role for the armed forces in the United States in recent days, We've seen the armed forces assist in the response to protests. We've seen earlier during the pandemic, the National Guard helped deliver food in the New York City suburbs. We've seen Navy medical ships help treat patients in New York City and Los Angeles. And we've seen similar scenes taking place worldwide as COVID-19 overwhelms the logistical capabilities of governments throughout the planet. This trend, which I refer to often as the coronavirus cavalry, has been thought of as potential start of a resurgence of military rule. Um, and I think that's probably exaggerated, as I will get into in the remainder of my talk. But I will say that there are reasons to be vigilant, and I'd say there are especially reasons to be vigilant in Latin America, 
for many of the historical reasons that Rob pointed out and for some contemporary vulnerabilities that we can discuss now and in our Q&A. In general, a democracy is considered to be consolidated when its armed forces are under full civilian control. So this is a key factor in recognizing that you have a, a strong democracy that's likely to endure challenges like a pandemic and the attendant economic struggles. Right? This is why the field of civil-military relations is so crucial for those who want to measure the strength of a democracy, particularly a new democracy. And at minimum, um, Samuel Huntington and others have described, you need at least subjective civilian control, which means not necessarily an apolitical military, but a military that is subordinate to the civilian authorities, even if it may be loyal to a particular civilian group that holds power at any given moment. Now, in the United States, despite what I mentioned earlier about this changing you know, role in the very recent past of the United States in, in domestic security, in responding to the protests, and in coronavirus response, it's generally taken for granted. And uh, the debate that we've seen over the last few days about the use of the armed forces in response to demonstrations, the public disagreements between the United States president and some active and retired senior military officials has sparked discussions about civil-military relations that are, are quite rare in the context of the United States. In Latin America, however, this topic has never gone away. But the region has a notorious history of military interventions in civilian affairs, notorious both because of the frequency of these interventions and also frequently their brutality. Rob mentioned the case of the Junta during the so-called Dirty War in Argentina, where as many as 30,000 civilians were disappeared, were murdered by the military authorities. But during that period in Latin America, you also had dictatorships in Chile, in Brazil, in Uruguay, and elsewhere in the region. Now, for those who have you know, followed the region, region casually or only recently, there's a sense that that era that I've just described was in the distant past. And I think that's true. Our, Latin America was one of the major success stories in the so-called third wave of democratization globally, which arrived in Latin America in the 1980s. And though initially, in that transition of Latin America, you saw the region's armed forces retaining either formal or informal veto power over policy decisions, or even in the case of Chile, where the outgoing military dictatorship of Pinochet actually wrote the Constitution, there were formal privileges that the military maintained that led to unique and not very democratic civil-military relations. But that role for the armed forces diminished significantly over time. And one of the strong pieces of evidence of that is the sharp reduction in military spending that we've seen in the region. If you look at military spending as a percentage of GDP, a common measure, of the government's commitment to its military, you'll see that in the you know, period of military dictatorships in the region, 9% of GDP in Chile was spent on the military, 6% in Uruguay, 5% in Argentina. Today, the regional average is under 1%. And in fact, the armed forces in the region, um, though you know, still important parts of society, but now with many fewer resources for both personnel, although most of the budget now go to personnel, and certainly for materiel, these governments have been trying to find missions for the armed forces that's often been in contributions to UN peacekeeping missions. Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil have been prime examples. And also to find missions for the armed forces in disaster relief, humanitarian assistance. We've seen that frequently after earthquakes, hurricanes, and other natural disasters. So this shows a continued role for the military, uh, but almost an effort to find tasks for military that no longer played the central role it had in the past. But at the same time, even while we've seen civilian authority 
imposed at long last over the armed forces in Latin America, we've not seen other aspects of democratic consolidation prosper. Right? Cuba remains authoritarian in the region, so it's not a fully democratic region. We saw a military coup d'etat in Honduras in 2009. We've seen Nicaragua and Venezuela recently experience profound democratic backsliding. Um, by most measures, they're no longer democratic countries. And in both cases, the military has played an important role in the transition to an authoritarian system. In Venezuela in particular, the military has vastly expanded its role for two decades, first providing social welfare to the Venezuelan poor and ultimately repressing anti-government protests. And, and now it very much is an independent power center in Venezuela. We've seen in Ecuador, which is you know, still very much democratic, the military often seen as a state within the state with significant economic power and significant autonomy from its civilian overseers. And so in that panorama I've described, obviously civil-military relations remain uncertain and, and subject to changes, as, as we'll talk about that have been going on lately, that would lead some to worry about the balance of power between civilian authorities and the military. And yet, again, those who don't study it on a day-to-day -day basis have considered that the absence of the traditional Latin American coup d'etat means that civilian control of the military should be taken for granted in Latin America as well. And so there's much less attention in general paid to this subject. And yet, scholars such as Ruth Diamint and others have said that the role of the military remains a puzzle and a problem for Latin America's democracy. And that, in fact, full civilian control has never been effectively imposed on the, on the military. The examples of that are not, again, the interruptions of democratic life that we saw in the past, but rather these changing roles for the military in civilian life. And in the, in, through that expanding role, we've seen increased power and authority and independence for, for many of the armed forces in the region. Right? In these cases, again, it's a very different mechanism. You often find elected presidents inviting or even dragging reluctant military leaders into domestic activities. Right? So instead of grabbing power, presidents are eager to have the military take on new tasks. Now, that sometimes occurs because a president recognizes the military as an independent power center and seeks to co-opt military power brokers, or because there are policing functions that the civilian authorities cannot handle or that the government wants to respond to public demands for better security. Latin America is one of the most violent regions in the world for a lot of factors, including corruption and, and lack of professionalization in the civilian law enforcement world. And so you often find both a public demand for better security and a lack of public supply outside of the armed forces. You know, a very common example and a compelling one is the fight against gangs in the so-called Northern Triangle of Central America. Those are the countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, some of the most violent in the world, and places where the military is frequently called in to help. As I'll mention in a bit, Mexico is another example. Now, these roles are less cinematic than the, the picture that one might have historically of generals governing Latin American countries. But the police and military are not interchangeable cogs in the machine of government, as Joy Olson, who formerly of the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, has written. And in fact, she says they exist for different reasons, have different missions, doctrine, training, equipment, and structure. And so all this has implications for how successfully the military plays a role when it's invited to engage in civilian law enforcement and other tasks. The Organization of American States has looked at this frequently, and its Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has warned that the history of the hemisphere shows that, broadly speaking, the intervention of the armed forces in internal security matters is accompanied by violations of human rights 
in violent circumstances. This has been seen repeatedly in Mexico, where the war, so-called war on drugs, which was militarized in the sort of mid-2000s in the presidency of Felipe Calderon, has repeatedly provided evidence validating those fears. That again, although there is a legitimate reason for bringing in the military, given both the scale of the challenge and the lack of competent civilian law enforcement authorities, the result has often been problematic from the human rights standpoint, and as I'm emphasizing in this presentation, also a democracy standpoint. Now, before COVID-19 in Latin America, we were already seeing signs of changing civil-military relations, even beyond this trend I've just mentioned of the military's involvement in um, the humanitarian disaster relief, and then also, in many cases, in civilian law enforcement matters. What we saw was Chile facing enormous protests, as other countries were in the region last year, deploying the military to control protesters last October. We saw the new president of El Salvador bring soldiers into the Congress to intimidate lawmakers to support proposed security spending legislation. We saw the military in Bolivia, perhaps most troubling, nudge President Evo Morales after, out of office after a likely fraudulent re-election where there was a lot of public discontent already, but the military ended up being the key factor in removing Evo Morales, sparking a lot of questions as to whether that might even constitute a coup d'etat, though the military never seized power nor attempted to do so. We've seen in Ecuador the president deploy the military to control protesters, and we've seen in Brazil something we hadn't really seen outside Venezuela, which is this enormous expansion of the military in the cabinet. The military now makes up more than one-third of the country's cabinet posts in Jair Bolsonaro's government. He was elected in 2018 and repeatedly has expressed actual nostalgia for the period of military dictatorship in Brazil. Now, the military itself has not expressed similar sentiment, but is playing an increasing role in a government that speaks very affectionately about that era. Now, again, the military's role as it has changed in COVID-19 does not match any of these categories I've just described, certainly not the traditional interventions and coup d'etat, not even on the the more controversial security measures that I've talked about in in Central America and in Mexico. Um, What you had here, nor in in, in repressing protesters, what you have is very different. What you have is the government asking the military to provide desperately needed humanitarian assistance in a very extraordinary moment. But it does represent yet another resurgence of the military in a more prominent role in public life in areas that are not traditionally in its area of responsibility. We see curfews being enforced by the military in Bolivia and Chile. We see yet again the president of El Salvador warning that he would use the military to be, quote, tougher on people on the streets as he seeks to enforce stay-at-home orders. We've seen the military in Peru blocking travel between provinces. In Argentina, we've seen the military building mobile health clinics and distributing food in poor neighborhoods. In Mexico, with next to Brazil, two of the worst outbreaks in Latin America, which is the worst region in the world right now, the new epicenter, as the World Health Organization calls it, for COVID-19, the military has been operating hospitals in Mexico. In lots of countries, we've seen the military play a role in repatriating citizens from abroad, stranded because of canceled flights and border closures. We've seen the military's patrolling closed border crossings, producing in their manufacturing facilities PPE, the personal protective equipment. We've seen the military producing sanitizer and stressors. We've seen across the region thousands and thousands of detentions for violations of quarantines and stay-at-home measures carried out not by the police, but by the armed forces, especially in Peru and in El Salvador. Now, listening to this list and even taking into account all of the other signs 
that have given concern about the changing role of the military. One might say this particular series of activities the military is engaged in shouldn't really factor in because the assumption is that the duration of the pandemic will determine the duration of this increased involvement in civilian affairs. But the question to ask is, is that for sure? Right? What if it does not? So one of the things that we can look for is what are these new roles that the military is playing that it may be continue to be called upon to play or seek to retain. And one of the things to look at is the situation of social unrest. There's what I've called an artificial calm in Latin America right now because of stay-at-home orders and because of, of the repressive measures that have been used to maintain social distancing. And all of these protests I referenced earlier in Latin America have not been going on right now. But there's almost no one who really believes that they won't resume at some point, maybe even in the middle of the pandemic. And there's even Mauricio Cardenas, the former finance minister of Colombia, has said that Latin America might end up going from quarantines, lockdowns to curfews, which is what they experienced in 2019 during these protests throughout the region. And so if that happens again, we may see once again the military being asked to play this role of repressing protests and demonstrations, which is not a comfortable role for it to play, again, in a region where it has a long history of, of not respecting human rights and, again, of playing a role in, in law enforcement that doesn't respect due process, doesn't involve criminal investigation, doesn't support the establishment and strengthening of the rule of law. And, and it's very likely these protests will resume, not only because, again, I said the calm is artificial, but governments will have even fewer resources after the coronavirus to answer the demands for less inequality and better public services that motivated in the first place all of that anti-government protest and violence. You also have other signs of fragile democratic institutions that would make you more nervous about one institution, in this case the military, playing a more protagonistic role. Right? You've seen elections because of the coronavirus repeatedly suspended or postponed in Bolivia and Chile and the Dominican Republic. And you've seen other signs of presidents taking advantage of the coronavirus to concentrate authority, whether that's because legislatures have had trouble meeting or because of the use of executive orders in a health emergency. So these other signs of, of weakening democracy make you more vigilant or should about the, the newfound activity of the military in the streets in Latin America. Now, importantly, before sounding the alarm excessively, I think it's important to note, which I highlighted earlier, that Latin America's armed forces do not seem eager to rule. In Venezuela, for example, critics of Nicolas Maduro and the Chavista movement have long urged the military to depose the president under the idea that it probably would not rule in any lengthy transition period, but the Venezuelan military has not been eager to do so. In Bolivia, even though it was the military that ultimately deposed Evo Morales, it was not a second, it seemed, that the military was thinking it would govern the country. In Peru, for example, the military stayed on the sidelines other than a brief remark that it supported the president when there was a major constitutional crisis between the president and the Congress, and the Congress tried to depose the president. And in the midst of all of this, you never saw the military as the most important power broker or as an actor that would actually rule the country. But still, these fears of a slippery slope are hard to shake, and those who have taken the long historical view give a lot of reasons to say that at a minimum we should all be watching closely the evolution of this new role. I mentioned the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, earlier, which has been particularly vocal about this issue, though we've seen concern from Human Rights Watch and others about the increasing role the military is playing in the region and elsewhere. And the reason is that the civil military norms that I said were established after 
the dictatorships finally subsided in the, in the early 1980s, or even in the case of Chile in the late 1980s, early 90s, was that they relatively knew these traditions, they were hard fought, and they're always vulnerable to backsliding. So the troops that are now leaving the barracks in Latin America to address the health emergency, for example, may start seeing their presence on the street being normalized so that the populations and the government see this as a normal part of life in the region, and then you get into this potential slippery slope of a role that's hard to, to shift and to reallocate these authorities back to civilian institutions. There's also this question of the political capital that's being accumulated in the hands of the military. This is a less tangible concept, but a real one when you have a military that has some independence, either because of economic interests, historical interests, or you know, minimal or ineffective civilian oversight. And so this idea that Ruth Diamond talks about, which is that favors must be repaid, is something that it's difficult to measure, but one knows that if civilian governments are asking the military now to play these new roles, what will the military want in return? And so the risk she talks about is that this new friend could become a behemoth, right? One that's difficult for civilian authorities to control or to reimpose previous norms in that relationship. So the bargaining power that the military and, and particularly the, the armies in Latin America are gaining now could end up being problematic in future clashes among branches of the government, particularly amid the likely chaos of a resumption of, of social unrest amid this extraordinary economic decline that we haven't seen since the Great Depression in Latin America, with huge increases in unemployment, huge declines in economic opportunity, decreases in trade. It's a commodity-dependent region that will likely not see a return to the prices they were accustomed to for their copper, soybeans, wheat, beef, and iron ore, and, and so very slow, if any, recoveries in the near future. All of that creating the possibility for renewed social unrest, clashes within the democratic institutions, and a now emboldened military that could suddenly find itself with openings to play a bigger role in politics than it should in the consolidated democracies of Latin America. So this is the, the so-called stickiness problem, that the use of troops in these cases is seen as an exception adopted for a limited time, but in many cases they either never leave the task, they're not asked to, or they, they decide to stay. Now, you might say that Latin American civil society could provide the vigilance necessary that I'm calling for here. The problem there is that the democratic institutions are so weak in many of these places, and the awareness of the corruption and often incompetence of the civilian law enforcement is so known that actually the military has a decent reputation, despite this history I've mentioned of military interventions and of, of rather brutal military rule, um, particularly most recently in the era of the 70s through the early 80s and in some cases even later. Why is that? In part, young people who don't have an actual historical memory of this, and in part, it's the real demands for security from a very violent region. So Latino Barometro, which is the most reliable polling region-wide, in its report in 2018, the last data that's available, found that 44% of Latin Americans have confidence in the armed forces. That's the second most popular institution after the Catholic Church at 63%, and it's double the 22% that have confidence in the executive branch or the 21% that have confidence in Congress. So as you can tell, it's likely not going to be, until it's too late, Latin American civil society or the Latin American public that call for the military to remain in the barracks or to remain within its traditional area of responsibility. And this is true, again, even in countries that have experienced relatively recent, quite 
uh, traumatic experiences with the armed forces playing a bigger role in civilian life. Even in Argentina, which we've talked about a few times, 48% of the public expresses confidence in the armed forces. Now, again, that's a good thing in general, but only if you have the requisite civilian oversight of the institution. And as security continues to be one of the top public concerns, even amid this health crisis and the economic damage, you have what Sergio Bitar has written, the fear and vulnerability that those factors can predispose people to trade freedom for security. And then America pollsters often ask this question of, do you support democracy? Would you trade democracy for greater security? And in the most uh, dangerous places in the region, you find understandably, but also disturbingly, relatively high percentages of the population willing to consider that trade-off. So what happens now? You have the political leaders in the region who are going to continue, at least in the short or medium term, to turn to the military to provide these critical logistical services, to address security, to return if there's social unrest, to repressing protests. And as that role has continued to play, it's, there's no reason to think that civilian authorities will increasingly become, become more competent or professionalized to be able to step in and take over those responsibilities again. So there, again, is the stickiness problem where we don't see a clear exit, even as we hope at some point COVID-19 leaves the region and some kind of economic recovery and some kind of social peace returns. And so as COVID-19 makes the militaries in the region even more critical to life every day, probably most critical since the days of the Cold War, as Christina Mani, another scholar on the subject, recently wrote, the question is, quote, will politicians be willing and able to roll back the militarization they are now embracing once the pandemic is over? And on that matter, though I don't think we're seeing necessarily, in fact, I don't think it's more likely than not, that we will see actual military governance in the region, I do share that view that it, there's no obvious moment where these new roles the military has taken on will be handed back to civilian authorities. The military may not be running mobile hospitals once ICU beds are no longer uh, necessary, once they won't be making PPE, once there's no more pandemic. But as they have shown stickiness in assuming a lot of these civilian law enforcement roles, such as in the fight against cartels in Mexico or the fight against criminal gangs in northern Central America, some of this new credibility the military has gained and some of these new civilian, normally civilian functions probably will be held for the foreseeable future with implications for the quality and further consolidation of democracy in Latin America. Let me stop here and see if, if Rob or others have questions. And of course, I welcome your questions as well. And I thank you again for your interest and for the opportunity to discuss this issue with you today. Ben, uh, that was just simply superb. Thank you. Uh, and just a reminder that that part of the conversation, that part of the conversation, Ben's remarks, uh, were, were recorded and are on the record. We now turn to an off-the-record kind of Q&A segment. If you have a question, please email Nora Bodner at nora.bodner at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, she'll track uh, those questions and we'll uh, uh, bring them to our conversation. Um, but let me lead off um, with, I think, a question that just follows straight on from where you um, concluded, Ben. Um, what's the role of U.S. foreign policy in this trend? In Latin America and elsewhere, does the United States do enough to strengthen civilian institutions, or does U.S. foreign aid disproportionately support foreign armed forces? It's an important question. I'm glad you asked it. I didn't focus much on the U.S. role. I think in Latin America, the U.S. 
and elsewhere tends to model good behavior, I would say, when it comes to civil-military relations with a highly professionalized military that is clearly subordinate to civilian authorities with great discipline in almost all circumstances to, although members of the military do vote in the United States, which isn't true in some countries, including Latin America, but, but where the military bends over backwards to stay out of politics, to remain apolitical, to remain neutral, and to perform a professional function. I think that modeling is still going on, despite some of the controversies in recent days regarding you know, potential increased role in, in what are normally law enforcement matters, as I referenced with, with protests. On the foreign policy piece, however, we probably don't strike the right balance. And that has to do with the enormous resources that the United States invests in the Pentagon vis-a-vis the U.S. Agency for National Development, USAID, and the U.S. Department of State. And so the, the difference in the budgets for these agencies is also reflected in their international relations. And so the, in Latin America, the commander of Southern Command has a lot more resources to bring to bear in cooperation and naturally uses those to strengthen counterpart militaries. In important training, equipping, and building of so-called mill-mill relations, but to the detriment of civilian authorities, which don't receive nearly as much assistance. Now, they don't receive no assistance. In Latin America, which is the area that we're focusing on now, in northern Central America, which is the most problematic, there's a great effort to provide assistance to professionalize, to vet, to fight corruption in the security services. In the Northern Triangle, the, the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, the INL Bureau of the State Department, does a lot of work working with other U.S. government agencies, including DEA and various components of, the, of Homeland Security. But again, it almost always pales in comparison to the, to the money and training that the Pentagon can bring to bear on its relationships internationally. And it's also demand-driven. Often it is these governments, as I've mentioned, that are seeking to have the military play this big role, often out of desperation. And the U.S. rarely objects to that, including Latin America. I think there are times where you will hear statements from the State Department, even from the, the military, to say, well, these aren't the traditional roles that the armed forces need to play. But there's also a recognition of the public demands in Latin America for urgent improvement in the security situation, and also just who has the capabilities in the short term to address these challenges. So what I would say is I think the U.S. models good behavior, does some work to support democratic institution building, but provides more help to the military and has been basically neutral when it comes to whether we endorse the use of the armed forces in Latin America for all these non-traditional functions. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, uh, Another question comes to mind um, uh, raised in your, in your presentation. You know, it's common to uh, measure the influence of any public institution uh, by its share of public resources. And uh, you have this seeming contradiction. You say that Latin America's militaries are gaining a potentially perilous level of influence, but you observe that the military spending in the region is quite low. Uh, can, you, can you explain that disjunction to us? It's, a, it's an important observation, and I'm glad it's on the off-the-record part, so, so you pointed that out. Won't be, won't be quoted. I think it's a, it is a hole in the argument for sure. Um, and I think, you know, it's a helpful sign for those who, you know, have expressed concern over the sort of surge in role of the military. I think that is an important measure. And I think there are, there are reasons why it would also be useful for the militaries in the region to have more resources, I think, for professionalization, for modernizing equipment, for being able to be helpful to the United States, whether that's in peacekeeping or even in emergency response. So I don't want to make the argument that in all cases it's better 
that there's not more funding for the military in Latin America. But what I will say is I do think you're right. I think it's a sign that the military may not yet at least have the kind of influence that, you know, some human rights and democracy defenders worry that it has obtained of late. Now, there are other factors that I would say that you could use to measure, though, the importance of the military, and some of them I've given. You know, active duty members of the military in the cabinet, the huge economic prerogatives that the military has in places like Venezuela, where it controls the highly lucrative oil sector, among, as well as food importation and distribution. So there's some other areas where the military is outside of the traditional military budget, has accumulated more power that I think does justify and support this argument that it's becoming, you know, more and more of these independent power structures um, that, that, you know, are co-governing countries even, you might go so far to say. But I think you're right, and I think the fact is one of the ways to measure it is the percent of GDP spent on the armed forces, and it's, it's quite low. And if you look at the sort of toys that these militaries really desire, including, you know, some semblance of a modern air force, it's rare to see, right, outside of places like Colombia, Mexico to some degree, thanks largely to U.S. assistance. Um, you don't see places like Argentina, for example, having any real Air Force to speak of or real mobility of any kind. And so I think that is one reassuring metric, um, but not the only one that can measure this phenomenon. Yeah, just a, kind of a follow-on to that. Has there been any, I don't know if the word rehabilitation is the right word, of reputation through their involvement and this sort of providing this public good during a pandemic. I know in this country, you know, the military in the 60s and 70s, the Vietnam era, their reputation declined. Um, I think there's polling to support that. But now they're, um, I think, probably the most trusted institution. There's been a real turnaround there. Is, does this create an opportunity for the military to in a sense, not, not negate because it can't be done, it can't be negated, but can they provide like it just to present a, a different optic for um, their publics to sort of view them in a different way? It absolutely can. I mean, I think some of the new roles for the military are more perilous than, than opportunities. Getting involved in civilian law enforcement often puts the military face to face with situations where often human rights are abused, where the military has opportunities for corruption and so, you know, faces risks of becoming corrupted like civilian law enforcement. I think you're right, though. When you look at COVID-19 response, you do have an opportunity for the military to be distributing food so that people who have no savings and live in these informal communities, these shanty towns, can maintain social distancing to some degree while still being fed, the military operating medical facilities. I think you're absolutely right. These are opportunities for the military to justify whatever funds and resources it does command, and to improve an image in countries where it's still largely known for the abuses of the dictatorship era. And, and I think this is not a small factor that you've identified because those abuses are very much in the common discussions in Latin America. If I tell you the dates that these alleged abuses are not alleged took place, you would think this is a historical debate. But in reality, these countries have grappled so frequently in reverse positions so often on amnesty for the military that in places like Argentina, you have active investigations and trials for the first time for many of the crimes that occurred 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, you know, the reality is that the military is still seen often through the prism of the authoritarian period. And, yes, I agree. I think this gives the military an opportunity, again, to show why it's a valid institution in a place with very no interstate warfare, very few insurgencies where it can be hard, particularly in an economically difficult period, to justify defense spending. This is an opportunity to improve the reputation. And I think it has worked to some degree. I mean, I, I supplied some Latino about a metro polling data earlier. It is the second most trusted institution in the country. And 
you know, that says a lot about the low prestige of, of Congresses and of, of presidents in the region. Um, incumbents have been very unpopular. It's been very difficult lately to win re-election. But it also says something, I think, about the military regaining some trust from society.